This podcast is about all things related to a disparate community of Americans without a name. We are the M, A-M-M. A for Arab, M for Muslim, and another M for Middle Eastern. By heritage, and American by choice or circumstance. But more importantly, we are separated and alienated from each other. It's time to get in front of the racist PR, clean out the cobwebs, and get to the business of defining ourselves. We are here to elevate AM voices. You ready to hear some tough truths? I am Banav Shemadani Nijad. This is Maya Sheikh. I'm Ramesh Nadeem. I'm Roy Casagranda, and this is The Defining Moment. All right, well, happy that y'all are joining us for our fifth episode. Uh, for the last four episodes, we've been talking about race. Um, and we thought we, we're going to go back to race, don't worry, but we thought we will um, mix it up a little bit and have uh, one of our Am Austin heroes, Shiro's, here today. Bahia Amawi is with us today, um, and we're very honored and we're very happy to have her. Bahia, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us why we are so excited, especially excited, to have you here today? Well, thank you for guys for having me. Um, so um, I'm not sure people are, are familiar with my story, but I'm the speech-language pathologist that in the fall had lost her job because of an anti-BDS law that required me to sign a contract stating that I confirm that I will not boycott the state of Israel during my time with working with the state. Um, and so With the state of Texas. State of Texas, yes. Um, and then uh, from I, I did refuse to sign it, so I had was forced to leave my work that I have been with for nine years at the Flugerville Independent School District, and so I decided to um, voice my opinion and make sure my voice is heard. So I decided to sue the state of Texas. Ooh, um, so that was a big step. But I, I so felt, you messed with Texas. Yeah, I messed with Texas. Did, yeah. I've been in Texas for twenty years, and I I feel like I can mess with Texas since <laughs> I have a right, you know, Absolutely. since I've been here for twenty years in Texas. So let's go back a little but you said you're a speech-language pathologist. What level of kids do you work with at the Pflugerville School District? Well, I work at elementary um, school age, so my primary job is to be on uh, a team of um, diagnosticians and other speech-language pathologists to evaluate kids who are from three to five years old, um, early intervention, Um, but I also do um, therapy and evaluation of kids in the upper elementary grades as well. And were there any specific languages you were working with with those kids? So my goal with the early intervention team is to work with kids who have Arabic as their home language. Because in speech language pathology, you are required to test kids in their home language to make sure that the issue is not um, dialectal difference and it's actually a disorder so they can get appropriate services. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm interjecting, but what is your history, Myra, with Bahia? Yes. Do you want to tell the story or do I? It's a it's a long lived romance yeah. between us. Well, I first met Myra at the <laughs> annual and fundraiser. That's all it took, just a look, yeah, just a glance. At the annual fundraiser in the fall, actually, of twenty eighteen, um, and it was actually two weeks prior to the seeing my contract, the anti BDS um, law on my contract, and so that's when she was introduced to the community as a new director of the Council of American Islamic Relations um, and in so, Austin. In Austin, that's right. And that night. Uh, amazingly, the, the speaker was none other than Linda Sarsour, and something she said to you know to the to the audience resonated with me, and that was, "You'll never know when you need care." 
Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I really did not think I'm going to need care. Mm-hmm. But then two weeks later, when I received my contract and I saw that, that's the first thing that popped in my head. Um, and so that's why I right away I decided to call care um, just to try it out, even though I, I wasn't sure that it would take my case or not. Mm-hmm. And Myra was the first person to answer immediately when I called um, at the, you know, I didn't have to call a second time or anything. So, and I told her my situation and she told me, email it to me um, and I'll see what, um, I can send it to the national and see what's going to happen from there. And then within, I think an hour or two, she got back to me and she said, they were going to take my case. And it was that quick. And after, since then, we've been best buddies. We've been kind of tangled in this uh, little <laughs> adventure together and journey uh, in the past year. So to zoom back out a little bit, what's going on? What is BDS? What does this have to do with speech language pathology? Why is Pflugerville involved? What's going on? That was my question, too. When I saw that on my contract and I saw that I had to confirm and affirm that I will not boycott the state of Israel, and I was like, what does Israel have to do with me as a speech-language pathologist working with early childhood kids in Pflugerville District in Texas? That was my question. I think that's baffling to everybody why we are taking an oath to a foreign country. Um, BDS, which is something I do engage in, I'm not directly involved in BDS. I'm not like an activist directly in there. I'm a you know, person that's on my own. I've always um, paid attention to products and the labels and where they're made from. Um, and so even the ingredients and everything. So I'm a very conscientious person when it comes to buying um, you know, products. And I've always did not buy products from Israel. And then and BDS is basically is but yeah. What does BDS stand yes. for? It's a boycott divestment um, sanctions, and it is um, to put economic pressure on the state of Israel through nonviolent protest um, by um, um, you know hoping to. Um, change their direct change their behavior toward the Palestinian people and um, and you know remove the discrimination and give them basic rights and um, their independence basically be able to have more freedom movement of freedom movement and um, um, stop the settlements that are being legally built on a daily basis just to circle back a little bit you said that when you you know go out shopping for your family and things like that you you know check labels so what is an example of a product that you would then maybe not end up purchasing so people can kind of put this in perspective as to what you being again a, an elementary school speech language pathologist versus you you know living your life trying to like what does that look like for you in terms of your choices well i mean i i look at everything regarding my uh, my school and my home everything that i buy for either one i pay attention to the label so whether being container that holds my materials for um, my students at school or being toys or books that I buy when I um, conduct therapy or evaluations or even food for my own family when I buy products for my family as well. So it's kind of intertwined um, I for both. And one of the main products is um, of, um, the hummus, sabra hummus, is uh, the one I mainly do not uh, purchase, which is more common people um, are familiar with. So just to kind of put this in in slightly different lens for people that may not be as familiar with Texas law. um, So I believe it was the 2017 session and and Texas has a biannual legislature. They basically passed a law that said that um, if you're a contractor with the state, you cannot boycott the state of Israel. And the law was drawn so broadly that, for example, Bahia purchasing or deciding not to purchase rather Sabra Hummus for her family then ended up impacting her job as a speech language pathologist. So that because she made those choices for her home life, even that that was something that would end up 
violating her contract as a speech language pathologist with Pflugerville Independent School District. Yes, that's exactly what happened. One of the things that really drives me nuts about all of this is it seems to me such a a simple case of First Amendment right here. Be, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United case in 2010, which of course is a hideous ruling, that uh, because corporations are entitled to having their First Amendment right, the only way they can express that First Amendment right is through economic means by bribing members of Congress, basically. So they've made it clear, the Supreme Court has made it clear that economic activity is actually a First Amendment issue when it comes to freedom of speech. So you would think that going to the store and saying, I'm not going to buy a product from country X would be protected by that. And the fact that this has happened and it doesn't seem to be... uh, you know, like it. Why isn't there outrage at the at the level of why can't she make this decision? I, I just I'm baffled by the whole thing. Yeah, and I think most people are baffled because, um, you know, after my story came out, um, I had a um, a lot of um, um, social media support and comments, and people were just um, you know flabbergasted how this is happening in the United States. You know, when protest has been part of the fabric of the U.S., we've had protests, you know, um, long before. Um, you know, um, so it's people were just baffled this is happening, and that we cannot exercise our free speech and um, engage in, in boycott of whoever we want to. Um, and, you know, our own president engages in boycott of his own country. Um, you had New York um, Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, he boycotted North Carolina. So the fact that they allow people to boycott within our own country, but not internationally outside, is even more baffling. And it makes you think about what is the gain here? What is the gain from these representatives? What are they getting out of this? I think to add to that, part of what makes this particular law really frustrating for people was that it was so incredibly overdrawn as well. But beyond that, people also didn't know it was applying to them. So when you read your contract, do you feel like a lot of the people who worked in the same school district or people that you knew in your field were also reading their contracts and knew that this was a part of it? Yeah, so when I was reading my contract, actually, I was with uh, my early childhood team that I was working with. And, and they were asking me, what is it I'm looking at? Because I was just diligently looking at this paper. And um, when, so when they looked at it, they themselves immediately went to look at their contract because they just were surprised to see that at all. So it did trigger like a, a domino effect where people were looking at their contracts and paying attention to something they already had signed to see what, what did they do the same thing or not. This is just a PSA to people out there. Read things you sign your name to. <laughs> Says the attorney. Okay. Um, so I have a I have a question too. Um, in all of this that you've been, you know, this whole time you've been talking about it here, and um, as we've talked in the past, um, the the thought that keeps blinking in my head is, well, how does this all make you feel? Mm-hmm. Um, how how did you feel when you read your contract? How did you feel when you called Myra? How have you felt since? And by the way, um, what's happened also? Like this is a two parter. Yeah. When I I know when I saw that. Um um, law on my contract, I, like I said, I was first baffled. I just didn't see the connection between the state of Israel and my job here in Texas. And I was insulted. Mm-hmm. I was really insulted as an American mm-hmm. and insulted as a Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like, you know, here I am, an American citizen. Um, I have, I should have the rights to, uh, the, you know, uh, exercise my constitutional rights, the First Amendment, like everybody else does in the United States. But because it's regarding this topic, this conflict, the Palestinian-Israel conflict, you're not allowed to. 
And again, it goes back to the many decades of propagandas and lies that's been spewed by um, politicians, um, you know, the media, and to make fabricate things and make it look like the Palestinians are the bad people and they should not have equal rights. And it kind of, you know, generalizes here in the United States, unfortunately. It is not just discrimination in Palestine, but discrimination here in the United States as well. I think there's also this really insane, obvious uh, parallel. So the, what it what this law feels like is a, if this law had been passed in the 80s requiring all people in Texas to automatically buy South African products and that they, that people in Texas could not not buy South African products. And so there's this really strange uh, – I, th- I think this brings out a really strange thing and that is I, I can't imagine many people going, yeah, we should really force black people to buy South apartheid South African products. Whereas it doesn't seem like anybody's, I shouldn't say anybody, but it doesn't seem like that the politicians of Texas are questioning the weirdness of making a Palestinian buy Israeli products. It's even worse than that, right? It's it's people who have who are who are black South Africans who have immigrated to the United States have to buy South African products. It's like they want you to be complicit to what's happening, and it's really it's um, these laws. I see them as a form of censorship silencing people and a bullying tactic. They want to scare people not to speak out, um, not to voice opinion and bring attention to the atrocities happening and the violations, the many violations that Israeli government is constantly um, engaged in. How were you feeling when you were messing with the state of Texas? <laughs> and <was> since? <laughs> and what, what, is the, what, what is the result now? Could you tell us about that too? Well, it felt good that I could actually do something about it. It really did. I felt like I finally um, can have a voice for the people of Palestine, where their voices can be heard all the way over here. Because believe it or not, actually what happens in the United States affects the Palestinians. All the decision-making for Palestine is made here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it was wonderful that I can be the voice for them, and I can be able to stand up and do something about it. Because it's something that... Sometimes, you know, you wish you can do something and help out, but you're not able to, your hands are bound. And this is something I was able to do something and get involved in. So felt wonderful about is it. Is your city still in Palestine? My cities, may Allah, I give them Aww. mercy, they're gone. But I have family still in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, my, we've, we, my family goes every year. Um, so we have a lot of um, family and land there that's been in our, in our ancestors now for over 300 years. So... We've been there for a while, where Palestinians are indigenous people to the land, um, and so they they need to have rights and equality and be treated equally as Israeli citizens as well. Tell me this: so when you know the lawsuit ended up being filed on your behalf, how far did the news of this lawsuit within the state of Texas go? Um, it's it's really funny. I didn't um, expect it to um, go as far as it did, but it went all the way to my village in Bala, a tiny village that I spent a lot of time with on top of a beautiful mountain. And people were calling. My cousins were calling, you know, checking on me, say, what's going on? What's happening? Are you OK? Um, so but it went all the way to there and even Australia. I've got messages from Australia from strangers. Um, I mean, Dubai, everywhere you can think of, basically every continent received this um, story somehow. And because I think it just resonated with people because it's um, about everyday people being affected here. It's not about people who are activists on a daily basis. It's just everyday people doing their normal routine who are impacted by laws that are not aware of until um, unfortunately it becomes too late.
So you're saying that this has had like resonances both within the U.S. and internationally. Now, why should American progressive movements or progressive causes in the U.S. care about this issue in particular and rally behind this? Um, well, progressive movements, I, I think they they like to address problems that are caused by, um, you know, political corruption. And this is exactly the scenario here. And they, uh, what's nice about progressive movements, they empathize with people who are marginalized or suffering. And um, Palestinian people, ha- this is a political thing. This is, um, even though people want to make it become a religious thing, which is not a religious thing, and this is not... Uh, Muslims against Jews or against Christians. Um, actually, uh, Muslims and Christians and Jews are uniting in um, a lot of organizations are uniting together, you know, against the occupation atrocities happening there. So this is more a political issue. This is Zionism, an extremist government, which is not a- equal to Judaism. People have to understand that. Um, people think when well, we're talking about Israel, we're talking about um, Jews, but it's really about the Zionist government. And people don't understand the difference between Zionism and um, Judaism. And even you ask Jews or Jewish organizations, they will tell you they're against Zionism, uh, many of them. So um, so this is a political issue. Just just a literacy mm-hmm. moment here. Could we could we spend like just a few seconds dis- what is talking Zionism? about what Zionism is? Yeah. yeah. Do you want that? Professor Roy. <laughs> so Zionism was created at the end of the uh, 19th century. <laughs> by uh, an Austrian, a Jewish Austrian, in reaction to the belief that uh, no matter how hard a Jewish European tried to be a European, they would never actually succeed. Uh, it was the, the, oh my God, this sounds so familiar. Yeah. And so as a result, they needed their own, the Jewish population in Europe should leave Europe and they should create a homeland where they were the majority somewhere else. Uh, Herzl was actually against Palestine in, in the beginning. He wanted to do Uganda or New Mexico or Arizona or part of Australia. And in the end, uh, the Zionist movement picked Palestine as the place to go. And it is essentially the belief that there needs to be a Jewish-only state. Um, the problem is, is of course, the whole planet was occupied. So no matter where you went, except Antarctica, you were going to displace somebody. Um, and so uh, Israel exists at the expense of the Palestinians just in the same exact way that apartheid South Africa allowed white people to rule uh, a country where they were the minority in at the expense of the majority native population. And that was Professor Roy, everyone. But just to kind of bring this back, um, so basically to retell the story a little bit, you called us here at, you know, CARE, and we obviously took your case, and we filed a lawsuit on your behalf. So what happened after that? Mm-hmm. Um, after um, CARE filed the lawsuit on my behalf, from there it kind of, um, you know, went rather quickly. Um, we, um, we had... Um, you know, the paperwork started moving and we had a lot of um, press releases and because um, it just made a huge impact and affected a lot of people. People were just, like I said, resonated with a lot of people. So it just brought a lot of attention to it. Um, and eventually when we finally get to court, we um, thankfully, um, Judge Pittman ruled in our favor. And um, temporarily now there's an injunction where this law um, impacting individuals does not um, does not exist in Texas and is not applied currently in Texas. Literacy moment. What is an injunction? It basically means a stop. But just to kind of um, go back to that point a little bit. One, um, the judge that he is referring to is Obama appointed judge within the Western District of Texas. Um, And this all happened relatively at the same time that the state of Texas's legislature in its last session in 2019 was considering an amendment to the law, perhaps 
in reaction to your filed lawsuit, which basically would have or did end up amending the law to basically apply to a much narrower scope of people. So it never got rid of the law altogether, but it ended up applying to a much narrower scope of people. So it would be companies with 10 or more employees and contracts, I believe, over $100,000. So they did something very similar to what some other states have on the books. Um, Don't quote me on this, but I think there's about 26, 27 states at least that have very similar laws, um, anti-BDS laws on the books that are very similar to what Texas has now made. Um, but like she said, um, the the judge in the Western District of Texas is, is perhaps continuing in this case as well. So we'll see where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. And I, sh- I want to say something about these laws. Um, they're kind of copycat laws. A lot of these laws are, for the first time, according to USA Today, they're actually written by pro-Israeli lobbyists, by pro-Israeli organizations, um, and they're not by representatives at all. And they basically just, they're copycat and sent to other states to do the same. Is Alec behind this? There's probably a number of different groups behind it, but I wouldn't be surprised, perhaps, if Alec is one of them. The other thing I'll ask you, I'll ask you two things. Um, One, you have four amazing children. And how were, you know, how were they taking all of this? It's obviously a lot of attention directed your way. And then two, um, when the law was at the Texas legislature, did you do any work that impacted that? Yeah. Yeah. My kids, my four children have been actually supportive um, from the start. When they first saw the law themselves, they were baffled. You know, we always uh, made sure they understood the roots, where they came from and our heritage and the importance of speaking out against atrocities and um, discrimination the Palestinians face on a daily basis. Um, so when they saw they're like, oh, mom, you got to do something. Mom, you have to do something. Mama, go all Linda Sarsour on them. That's, mm. their, that's yeah. their word. So, um, so they were watching. They were kind of with me. So I, I, you know, it was a learning lesson for them. And they were very supportive. Um, whenever I had an interview or a press release or a meeting with Myra, they would make sure they would take care of the house and do things. And, you know, and um, so they were very responsible in that time because they wanted to make sure that I, I succeeded with this. How old are they? Um, I have a 17. I have... Have a 15, a 13, and a 9. By the way, if you could see Bahia right now, you would not realize that she is a 17 year old. I'm still baffled no, by it. Yeah. No. <laughs> when graduating this year and going through applications. Palestinian oh. skincare is no joke, everyone. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. But when you're regarding, um, you're talking about did I do anything in the process where they were um, considering them the amending the law? Um, actually, we were uh, quite active during that time because we were trying to educate our representatives um, about the the fact this new amended version of the law will not really change um, the violation of the First Amendment. Does not address the the main problem, which is um, restriction of free speech. Um, and so we did testify. Um, I went with care. Council of American Islamic Relations, and we went and testified in front of the Senate and the House as well. Um, and so it was um, uh, a lot of work, but I, it was worth it. And it was wonderful to be part of the process. Um, um, it's not always an easy process, you know, but I, I think it just it's wonderful to be part of it. And we can actually um, have opportunity to be involved in this and voice our opinions. Was this your first time going to the state legislature? It was definitely my first time going, yes. And was it intimidating? It was extremely intimidating. It was it was extremely intimidating because first I didn't know what to expect. And they have their own rules and policies and you kind of have to just roll with it, you know, because you don't know when, when you'll be called, when you're, um, the, the, the law that you're referring to is going to be called up. And so it's, um, it's a lot of waiting 
but you just kind of have to make plans for that day to stay there a little bit longer than you anticipate and just um, kind of go with the flow. Now that you've had that one experience, do you think you'll go back? <laughs> well, I'm definitely a little bit more experienced, so I think it could be easier, but I definitely I would go back because it's um, anytime you have opportunity to voice your opinion and speak out, you know, this is something that a lot of people all over the world are um, are trying to get and everyone should have the basic right to speak their mind. So we have that advantage here in the United States and we should take an uh, you know, uh, opportunity to do that, definitely. One of the things that I'd kind of like to ask to the panel is, you know, we've all kind of lived with Bahia through this experience. And, you know, as residents of Austin, residents of Texas, we don't always engage with our, you know, representatives at any level of government as much as we probably should. So what do we think are like takeaways from your experience, you know, in terms of you can start if you'd like and, you know, if anyone wants to jump in, please do. Yeah, I actually have a question. Um, did you meet one on one with any legislators I did. I met with several, actually, with my own representative. Um, and then after that, I went and met with 10 other or more even than that. So I did meet with, I would say, maybe about 15 or so. And Anything memorable stand out to you? Well, they all definitely empathized with what's going on. They understood it. But I feel like they were still, there's a lot of, uh, like I said, bullying and scare tactics where that when you're talking about the state of Israel, no one wants to really um, give a concrete answer on okay, it. Okay, so they empathized with your First Amendment rights, mm -hmm. but not so much with the Palestinian people in general. They did with Palestinian people as well. They, they did. did. Oh, wow. Yeah, they did. They understood the issue there. But unfortunately, like I said, this, this is an area that's still taboo. That's still that's you know people don't feel comfortable to talk about and state their mind. Uh, unfortunately, that um, the label of anti-Semitic scares them, even though it's not anti-Semitic to, to criticize the state of Israel. But people, you know, fear that label because unfortunately, when it has that label on you, then you're basically marked as a representative. And so I think a lot of them are still scared to speak up because um, when the amended version was voted on, forty voted. Um, present, but um, not voting. Wasn't that, that was, yeah, which is like a weird thing. I never understood that how they be present, but they're not going to vote. So it tells me they were understanding what's going on. They, um, you know, uh, they wanted to do something, but they couldn't go all the way through and just say, no, we're against this. I'll version. add one thing to what you're saying. I will give a shout out to Rep. Jean Wu from Houston, who I think had a very passionate argument on behalf of the argument that you are making essentially in defense of why this is a, a poorly written law, why we shouldn't have laws restricting our freedom, uh, freedom of speech. I think he was maybe one of the very few representatives that actually spoke out on the House floor against this particular bill. Um, but yeah, even the original bill that was drawn, I think it was al passed almost unanimously in the House and almost unanimously in the Senate. Even this one had an overwhelming majority of support. So are there any takeaways from, you know, any of this? What can we, I mean, obviously this is a very specific experience, but like mm -hmm. since we're all kind of people who consider ourselves to be activists, like what are our takeaways from here? I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways was just to be vigilant. Like I think if I had, were presented with the same contract, I would have signed it away and uh, not given another thought to it. So like one, being vigilant and like sort of protecting ourselves against any kind of um, onslaught or attack against our basic rights, our rights to expression, because those are always going to come up. If something else is going to happen five, six years from now, I guarantee it, that'll uh, attack our freedom of expression. So to always be vigilant for those threats and making sure that we're, you know, preemptively prepared and have capacity to 
react to these things. So like Care did a wonderful job of stepping in and being able to provide support and, um, you know, guide through this process, making sure that we have uh, those resources available to our community, that our community knows where to turn, that uh, we have capacity to address these issues when they inevitably will rise up. I mean, for me, I think, um, you know, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be at the end when I went through this process and decided to sue the state of Texas. But I felt like, you know, if whenever you're standing on the right side for principles and values and for equality for people, you're always going to win regardless. You may not see the outcome immediately, but you will see it at the end. And that's what I always teach my kids. You cannot just say, oh, this is useless. What's the point of doing something against, you know, about this? Just go ahead and just sign it or something. Because anyone, I could have signed it, no one would have known about it, right? But it, you cannot just say it's useless, there's no point. Because, uh, you know, even though if you may not get the outcome you want immediately, if you're on the right side, um, and um, you speak up for people who are marginalized and for your own rights, you always win in some way or other, but you may not see it immediately. You may see it later on in the future. Can I take like a tiny nerdy detour here? As someone who has gone to law school, I'm super excited for future generations of potential lawyers to learn about your case because I think it'll be one of those things that it'll, it may not have, like impact everybody, but people that read it who want to be in that space where they try to defend other people's rights and they, they try to be in the space mm -hmm. that you're creating, they'll be really excited about you know what you were able to do as someone, again, who is a speech language pathologist at a school district and not someone who necessarily occupied much more like traditionally activist spaces. I hope so. Yeah, I'm going to get on the capacity building soapbox again and say um, this just the, the sort of symbiosis between care and anyone in the community, in the AM community, who wants to um, defend their rights, whatever they may be, in the United States. I mean, I can't imagine doing something like this in my country of origin, Iran. Um, it is only, at, at least so far still, right? <laughs> we still can do stuff like this, um, that we can do this. And um, we just, we, we, the fact that CARE was there was a, was a huge deal. It's a huge deal. We need more capacity building organizations and I think I'll add on to that by saying that I agree with you and that I also think that we as AM communities need to think about the idea of how we prioritize our time and our energy. That obviously we prioritize family, work, and, and sort of the traditional things that everyone does. But as marginalized community members, um, one of the things that I, I definitely noticed at the legislature when we were there advocating on, on some of these bill updates was that you see a lot of people of color come into these spaces at very limited junctions. And you'll have people who are in majority communities. If you're in Texas from Tarrant County, there's just a heinous amount of people that come from there um, who will literally just roll up to the legislature and babble on any old bill that's like on the docket that day. But you'll only see people of color there or people that are from marginalized communities there on very specific limited issues. And even then, the level of preparation is vastly different. But he wrote like a very lengthy statement to read before her representative. Other people will roll up and just say, like, you know, this is what I think. And, and this is what I, so that level of privilege and that level of of do you work for me or do I work or do I feel intimidated by you? That's it's a, a strange relationship that happens in these communities. So for people that you know are listening to this and are thinking about, you know, how can I be inspired by what Bahia does? I think part of it is also just like demystifying for yourself that these spaces are not for you. 
you know, reach out to community spaces that, you know, help people get access to the legislature and then just go and say what you need to say without fearing like that's not a space that you can be in. Thanks so much for taking a stand. Thank you guys for having me here. Yes, it's been wonderful having you. We really appreciate you being here and what you stand for and what you've done and what you continue to do. Um, You're a Shiro lady. We'd like to thank Shakil Rashad at Capital Factory for his support and providing us with the amazing recording studio we're in. Justin Denson, again with Capital Factory for his technical support. Adam Wood, our wonderful sound engineer. Looking forward to the next episode. My name is Banafshe Madani Nejad. Khodahafiz. This is Maya Sheikh. Khodahafiz for me as well. This is Behiya Maui. Ma'asalami and Alvirazin. This has been Ramesh Nadim. Goodbye. This is Roy Casagrada. Ma'asalami.